the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Hope you're having a great weekend so far. Want to just get this out of the way here real quick. I, I don't think I mentioned this last week, um, but I, I have a book. I wrote a book. It's out now. It's called How to Change Someone's Mind. It's available on ebook and uh, paperback on Amazon. Uh, How to Change Someone's Mind. Someone on Facebook asked me if what it's about. Uh, I think they were joking, but just in case, it's about how to change someone's mind. I'll tell you real quick what it's not about because I don't want you to, to get it and be very disappointed. It's not about how to win an argument. Uh, after 10 years of radio, I've, I've learned how to win an argument. You talk louder and sound more confident. Ben Shapiro a couple years ago, and I like Ben Shapiro. Don't get me wrong when I say this, but Ben Shapiro wrote a book called uh, something like 11 Rules to Destroy a Leftist. Or something. Uh, that's, that's fine if you want to win an argument. That's not what this is. This is about really changing someone's mind. Uh, it's not necessarily about politics. It is. I got a couple of political examples in there, obviously, but it could be about religion. It could be about anything. Um, so it's a very short read. I wrote it to be uh, read in an hour. So you can read it in about an hour and you can put it to use right away. Uh, so I'd love it if you pick it up and, and let me know what you think. And really, I'm, I'm looking forward to some uh, awesome success stories as you think of that one person in your life who you've never been able to change their mind. How can you do it? Uh, it can be done. And I think this book has some, uh, some insight that will help you. So again, how to change someone's mind, Amazon, ebook, paperback, it's up right now, ready to roll. So coming up, we're going to talk about uh, slavery. We're going to talk about what ended slavery specifically and why that matters a lot. Uh, we're going to talk. So, oh, have you ever heard someone say, uh, oh, this is, we're a racist country because the Constitution said that black people are three-fifths of a person. Have you heard that? That proves that we're racist because at our core, at our founding the founding fathers thought that black people were, only, were less than a whole person. Blah, blah, blah. We are going to uh, get rid of that talking point with the truth. We're going to do that coming up as well. I was going to start with that actually, but I decided last minute to start with this instead. Because we talk a lot about how the media, uh, and, and just most people, pay attention to meaningless stuff. It's the difference between news entertainment and news. Very different things. A good example of that is yesterday, Sean Spicer. I got into work yesterday on my local show and I looked up and all the TVs were talking about Sean Spicer. And I thought, oh, geez, does this matter at all? Is, is, can anyone give me, on a scale of zero to 100, 100 being like a terrorist attack downtown, uh, and, and OJ Simpson's parole being a 10, can anyone tell me why Sean Spicer resigning is anything higher than a zero on the importance scale? But the media has to talk about it all day. First of all, it gives them a quick breather from Russia, which also doesn't matter. But uh, it's just, you know, Trump's team's in turmoil, right? That's what, it doesn't matter at all, like zero. It's just news entertainment doing their thing. So that's a very micro level. 
Uh, but also at a macro level, I think we're all, and I've been, missing the two biggest issues in the world today and two biggest issues in the world for the next 25, 50 years. And that is artificial intelligence and demographics. Now, I know Glenn Beck has talked uh, a bit uh, about artificial intelligence. Uh, I did a, we talked about it for two hours on my local show last week. And there's, oh, there's plenty more to, to talk about with that. Uh, everything else is dependent on these two things. Let me say it again. Everything, everything you're thinking of right now that you think is important is, and it may be, oh, what I'm saying, what you, what you think is important may be important too. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying everything you're thinking about is dependent on artificial intelligence and demographics. Those two things set the tone and stage and are the foundation for anything else that we need to talk about. I'll save AI for another day. And obviously Glenn touches on it. Uh, I want to talk about demographics here. On my local show, I talked about demographics for a segment a few weeks ago. Someone recommend that I read the book, uh, America Alone by Mark Stein, who I love. It's fantastic so far, maybe three quarters through. And it's mostly about demographics. Let me share one thing. Um, I was talking to someone the other day who just got back from Iraq. Runs a website called savethechristians.com. And he got back to some, from some towns in Iraq that are completely destroyed, were completely destroyed by ISIS coming in, driving out the Christians. They went house to house and they marked the homes of Christians with the Arabic letter N, N for Nazarene. That's what they call Christians, Jesus from Nazareth. They call them Nazarenes. So they marked it with an N, no different than how the Nazis marked the homes of Jews with the star of David and the letter J for Jude. Uh, marking these homes uh, to be killed, the people inside to be killed. So full-on Christian genocide going on in the Middle East right now against Christians. And I was talking to this guy, and um, Ezra Levant, and we talked about how Egypt, Egypt used to be a Christian country. Istanbul and Turkey used to be called Constantinople, named after the Emperor Constantine. The Hagia Sophia was a cathedral, now it's a mosque. These used to be Christian parts of the world until Muslim imperialists took them over around 600, 700 when Islam was invented. Muhammad took over a smaller area. The first caliphate doubled it and the second caliphate took over, uh, about doubled that again. There's nothing inherently Muslim about these areas. When we think Middle East, we think, oh yeah, that's where the Muslims live or that's right. That's, that's the, that's Islam there. That's the Islam place. Mm, no, there's, there's nothing that's never been the case until around six, 700. But there were religions there, Judaism, Christianity, many other religions that we don't know of today that were there well before Islam was there. So there's nothing inherently Muslim about these areas. It's just that Muslims are winning the jihad in these areas. Now, that being said, they're not stopping and they are winning the demographics battle. And that is all that matters right now. Because all they have to do is wait. Let me give you some proof. You've seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I'm sure. Or other movies where you have these uptight, you have an uptight, waspy American guy dating a girl from a giant Italian family or a giant Greek family. 
and the guy who's the only child meets the girl's family for the first time and hilarity ensues, right? So the birth rate that a country needs to maintain its population over time is 2.1 births per woman. Now, just to get the math out of the way here, you're thinking, hold on, 2.1 births, that doesn't make sense. Uh, that's over all the women in the country. So uh, let's say you had 10 women and nine of them had two babies and one of them had three babies. That's 2.1 births per woman, per woman. All right, so that's what you need in order to maintain the population of a country. Anything less than that, and the population of the country is decreasing. So what's the birth rate? We'll start with Western countries. Italy has a fertility rate of 1.2. Spain, 1.1. Greece, 1.3. Ireland, 1.9. Australia, 1.7. Canada, 1.5. Germany, Austria, 1.3. Russia, a dying power, 1.2. Again, anything less than 2.1 is going down. These countries are having every generation. The, gen the population of the country is being cut in half every generation. Think about it. Two adults have one baby, right? Eventually those two adults die. That one baby's left, right? The, the population's cut in half. By 2050, 60% of Italians will have no brother, no sister, no cousin, no aunt, no uncle. By 2050, there will be no such thing as the big Italian family. Now on the flip side, Niger, 7.4 births per woman. Mali, 7.4. Somalia, 6.7. Afghanistan, 6.6. .6. Yemen, 6.5. Notice what these countries have in common. In the words of Mark Stein, they start with the letter I and end with slam. Why does this matter? Two points. Have you ever, ever wondered why England was able to build so vast an empire? You know, we always hear about Western imperialism and colonialism. And in college campuses, they talk about how uh, we're all horrible. You're horrible because of Western imperialism as if no other empire has ever existed. The reason the English empire was so vast is because two reasons. First, it happened to come at the time when naval power was able to spread around the world. The Mongols around 1200, they tried to take there in China and Mongolia. They tried to take, and, and approaching Europe, they tried to take over Japan, but they couldn't because they couldn't build a navy that could get over there. So there was no overseas power prior to England because there was no navy that could do it. But England around that time had a navy and they could do it. Other people would have done it, but England was just the first. Second reason why England was able to build an empire overseas is they had the population to do it. Why? England was the first nation in the world to conquer the infant mortality rate. By 1820, because of improvements in hygiene and medicine, half the British population was under the age of 15. Let me say that again. 1820, half the British population was under the age of 15. So England had surplus manpower to settle in Canada and Australia and New Zealand and they could set up administration and bureaucracies uh, and business influences in the West Indies and Africa and India and all over the world because they were a young country. Fortunately for us and for the world, it was England who did this first. Imagine if the first country in the world to conquer infant mortality was Yemen or Saudi Arabia. And those countries spread around the world first. Today, what countries 
are young. In America, only 21% of the people in this country are under the age of 15. Only 21%. Saudi Arabia, 39% are under 15. Pakistan, 40%. Yemen, 47%. These countries have a lot of young people. We have a lot of old people. These young people are going to be sent around the world one way or another. And it's already happening. Do you know the most popular boy's name in England? I asked my wife the other day. I said, honey, what do you think the, uh, the most popular boy's name is in England? She said, Henry. I said, nope. She said, Edward? Nope. William? Nope. Mohammed. Most popular boy's name in Belgium? Mohammed. Most popular boy's name in Amsterdam? Mohammed. Most popular boy's name in Sweden? Mohammed. How could the most popular boy's name in Sweden be Mohammed? The world is the way it is today because England was a young nation in the 18th century. The young nations today are Muslim countries and the Western countries are dying, literally demographically dying. So when Trump talks about Western civilization, which I know we've talked a lot about the last few weeks since he was in Poland, Western civilization is offing itself. Back during the plague, one third of Europeans died. Today, we're doing more than that voluntarily by not having enough kids. And this isn't just me saying this. I'll take a break after this. We got a lot more to talk about this, but I got to take a break. Muammar Gaddafi, of course, he was the head of Libya. Uh, Libya, by the way, used to be a Christian country. In 2006, he said, quote, we have 50 million Muslims in Europe. There are signs that Allah will grant Islam victory in Europe without swords, without guns, and will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about demographics. In uh, Braveheart, that's what the king says. He says, we're going to breed them out. Meaning we're just going to take them over and we're going we're gonna to go and, and invade. And not, we're not going to invade in the traditional sense. We're going to go and we're just going to have more kids in them. And in due time, we will breed them out. one 888 We'll keep this going next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is... Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. So isn't what I shared, like, do you ever hear anyone talk about that? Do you, do you see how it's kind of important? Now, on the flip side, what do I mean by... Oh, and I have some more stuff I want to share about demographics, too. I just want to divert just for a split second here. Um, do you see what I mean by wasting time on meaningless things, too? Global warming, for instance. You have all these fake outrages. For the last couple hundred years, there's some scientists that did a testimony in front of the Senate. Uh, a couple years back, and they outlined 26 different alarmist movements in history. From uh, in 1798, they thought all the trees were going to die. Global cooling, secondhand smoke causes cancer, which it doesn't. Listeria and cheese, salmonella and eggs, fluoride and drinking water. All these these alarmist things, and none of them came true. None of them. And global warming is another one. You have all these fake worries. 1968, Paul Yerlich, and you know we've talked about this. Glenn has too. 
said, this is 1968. He said that in the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death. 1972, the club for Rome said that we're going to run out of gold, mercury, tin, petroleum, lead, copper, and natural gas all by 1990. 1977, Jimmy Carter said that the reserves of all the oil in the world will be gone by the next decade. None of those things happened. Not even close. We have more gold, mercury, tin, petroleum, lead, gas, copper than, than we did in 1968. None of those things happened. But what did happen from 1970 to 2000 is the developed world, the Western world, went from 30% of the world's population to 20%, and the population of Muslim countries increased from 15% to 20%. So you have this massive distraction with global warming, saying like our governor did, and we'll play this clip in the next segment, Governor Jerry Brown in California, that we're all going to be extinct if we don't raise the price of gasoline in California again not another 12 cents. Literally humanity depends on raising the price of gasoline again. When in reality, humanity depends on Western civilization. The problem is all we do is rip on Western civilization. Mark Stein, again, in this book, America alone, I definitely recommend it. He quotes a Muslim leader in Pakistan who was quoted in the daily telegraph in England as saying the Americans love Pepsi Cola. We love death. Meanwhile, a British novelist, a white woman, said, I detest Coca-Cola, I detest burgers, I detest American imperialism and American triumphalism about victories it didn't even win. So, many Muslims in Muslim countries hate us, and progressives hate us. But the best part is they all hate us for different reasons. They hate us for different reasons and yet for every reason. The fanatical Muslim hates America because we're all about lap dancing and gay rights. The secular Europeans hate us because we're all born-again Christians hung up on abortion. And the anti-Semites hate us because America is too controlled by the Jews. So we're too Jewish, too Christian, and too godless all at the same time. This is why the left has embraced environmentalism. I hope I can explain this well in a minute. Um, if we were a traditional superpower, then we would be looking for countries to invade and take over, as has happened all throughout history. And if that were the case, we would be a threat to India or France or whatever country we wanted to take over. But we're not a threat to these people or places. So the left had to make up a threat. Not, we're not a threat to some country or some people over there, or whoever. We're a threat to the entire planet. No, no, no. We're a threat to the entire galaxy. I want to quote Al Gore here, 2006. He wrote this in an essay. He literally wrote this out. He said, we are recklessly dumping so much carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere that we have literally changed the relationship between the Earth and the sun, altering the balance of energy between our planet and the rest of the universe. Are you kidding? Now, of course, there's no way to prove such lunacy. Right? Where, where's, the, uh, where's the graph for the rest of the universe? For, for our blanket of... What did he say? Our blanket of energy. Our, bal our balance of energy. Where's, where's the balance of energy graph for the rest of the universe from 1850 to today so we can compare it? <laughs> Doesn't exist. 
But environmentalism is embraced by people who have been raised to hate Western civilization and hate America because we're not a threat to other countries. But to them, they've invented this. We're a threat to the galaxy. Just something to beat ourselves up about. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. All right, as promised, here's the governor of California, Jerry Brown, talking in front of the U.S. Senate here about global warming. We got to, uh, it's about, they've increased the cap and trade or extended the cap and trade tax, which adds another 12 cents to the price of gasoline here in California, which is already the highest in the country for many reasons. And they just raised the gas tax a couple weeks ago, another, I think, 12 cents again, too. Anyway, it'll never be enough, but here's the governor. Climate change is real. It is a threat to organized human existence. Maybe not in my life. I'll be dead. What am I, 79? Do I have five years more? Do I have 10 years more? 15? I don't know. 20? I don't know. I don't know if I want that long. But most of you people, when I look out here, a lot of you people are going to be alive. And you're going to be alive in a horrible uh, situation that you're going to see mass migrations, vector diseases, forest fires, so I'm not here about some cockamamie legacy that people talk about. This isn't for me. I'm going to be dead. It's for you. It's for you. It's damn real. So I just ask you, take it seriously and give us that vote. A threat to organized human existence. <laughs> he said stuff like this before. The existence of humanity rests on California increasing the price of gas by 12 cents. Which will result in less people, you know, less less miles driven, less economic output, and he thinks this will result in a lowering of the temperature of the planet. <laughs> what the heck? And I love that argument though that he lays out there because there's no comeback. I, 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 I oh, the left is so good at this coming up with arguments that you have nothing. There's nothing you could possibly come back with. I saw um, last weekend was the gay pride parade here in San Diego. And I saw some people wearing shirts at the pride parade that said, all you need is love. All you need is love in support of, like, I'm not I'm really not sure gay marriage, I guess, even though that's already legal. So I'm not sure why we have pride parades anymore. But anyway, all you need is love. <laughs> like, okay. They've now set the debate on those terms, love. So you have two choices. If you're a good person who loves people, then you have to support gay marriage. If you don't support gay marriage, then you don't love people. You hate people. They've set the terms of a now unwinnable debate. Same with Jerry Brown. If you don't support cap and trade taxes, if you don't support his political policy, then you want floods and forest fires and disease and mass migration. And then he does this whole, this whole, oh, I'm so righteous. This isn't even about me. This isn't about me. This is about you routine. But those arguments that he makes, they're unprovable. If mass migration, which by the way is happening, people from Latin America into California, that like that mass migration is going on. 
But anyway, if mass migration, like he's talking about, doesn't happen, then he'll take credit because he'll say, oh, good thing we raised the taxes. If that does happen, then he'll blame you because you didn't do enough. So you can't win. He always wins. That's what happens when you set the terms. And I wish President Trump would get back to setting the terms of debates too. Alas, this is all meaningless. It's all about demographics. It's all about everything is dependent on this. It's entirely about the rise of Muslim nations and the suicide of Western nations. I mean, suicide intellectually, morally, and demographically. We proved in the last segment that the birth rate of Western nations is well below what it needs to remain stable. Remain stable is 2.1 births per woman. And European nations are 1.1, 1.2, 1.3. Japan's the worst. Meanwhile, Muslim nations are six, seven births per woman. This, I'm, I'm not making predictions here. This is reality. This is what it is right now. We're in the middle of it now. But you may be thinking, oscillator, who cares? What's the big deal? All right. Um, what if instead of England conquering infant mortality back in the 18th, 18th century and, and having a, a lot of people that they could spread around the world, and you know, at the beginning of naval power, so they could spread around the world and spread Western philosophies, Western ideologies, Western rule of law, etc. What if instead of England doing that in the 18th century, what if Saudi Arabia was the first? What if Saudi Arabia was the first to, to conquer infant mortality, so they had a young population? And what if Saudi Arabia was the first to have naval power, so they traveled to America first? What if the first colonists in America were were from Saudi Arabia? Do you think your life would be different? Do you think your life would be different today if Saudi Arabia was the first country to be able to sail around the world? Now, I can tell you exactly how much worse your life would be. Every couple of years, there's an organization that ranks the freedom of nations based on a bunch of different metrics. Of the eight lowest countries, so the eight least free countries, five of them were Muslim countries. Of all the 46 Muslim countries, only three are considered free. Benin, Serbia, Montenegro, and Suriname. So those are not exactly influential nations, which means the other 43 Muslim nations are not classified as free Freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of ideas, freedom of movement, freedom of religion. So where are the children of the future going to come from? Not Greece, not Italy, not Germany, not even America. The people, not China, not Russia, certainly not Russia. They're going to come from people who are very much at odds with the modern world. I'll prove this. I want to prove how fast this will happen. Yemen today has 27 million people. Yemen has 27 million people. Russia has 144 million. Russia is much bigger than Yemen. Many more people. 27 million in Yemen to 144 million. Goodness gracious. In two generations, two, Yemen will have more people than Russia. If you calculate the birth rate of Yemen today, and the which is which is a seven, 
And the birth rate of Russia today, which is 1.2. Two generations. Yemen will have more people than Russia. Russia's population is going down. Yemen's is exploding. So who do you want to be the superpower of the world? Western nations who believe in the rule of law and universalism and freedom of speech and individual rights or the Muslim world, which believes in zero of those things. Zero. Do you think your life is better now having America being founded by the British based on British values? Or do you think we would have been better off founded by the Saudis? Now think about the future of the planet. Demographics give you a pretty clear picture. One more segment I want to do on this, but I'll end with the words of Mark Stein. He said, one can cite examples of remote backward tribes who expire upon contact with the modern world, right? So you see these tribes that are remote, you know, let's say in uh, the Aztecs, right? And they come in contact with the modern world and those who have gunpowder win. But for the modern world to expire in favor of the backward tribe, is a turn of events that future anthropologists will ponder as we do the fall of Rome. Demographics. You know, people freaked out when Ralph Nader got, I don't even know what it was, 4% of the vote in whatever election he ran in. What are people going to think when in America, but first in the in the in European countries, when those Muslim kids, which make up a majority of the of the youth in England and all these other countries, again number one name in England is Mohammed. What are we going to do in a generation when forty percent of the people in England who vote are Muslim, or fifty percent, or sixty percent? You think the world's going to change? One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. I got one more point on this next. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. is Mike Slater. Slater Crusader. So it's all about demographics. You're going to hear me talk a lot more about it. As as I said, I think everything else depends on uh, artificial intelligence and demographics. So you're going to hear a lot more about those things moving forward because everything else depends on these two things. I'll make one last point here on demographics and we'll move on. Uh, Japan is in the worst shape. Japan's in absolute the worst shape and they're a good case study because they have no immigration to increase their or, or stabilize their population. So we can look at Japan to see where our future is. More adult diapers are sold in Japan every year than baby diapers. There are so few kids being born that there are very few obstetricians. Why would a doctor become an obstetrician if there's no business? So there's one island, Oki Island in particular, where the maternity ward is open on Mondays at 10 a.m. That's when the obstetrician flies in to help moms give birth. If you happen to give birth at any other time of the week, then you're out of luck. Birthing is a dying business in Japan. Now, again, Japan has no immigration, and there are no Muslims in Japan. 
so no one's going to take over from within Japan, right? There, there's just going to be fewer Japanese people. Mark Stein's book, he talks about how modern infrastructure, let's say sewer infrastructure, is in big trouble because not enough people are flushing their toilets. It was made for more people. Never have we had this problem before. Usually the problem is how are we going to expand our infrastructure to, to accommodate more people? Now it's how are we going to decrease our infrastructure to accommodate fewer people? And sewer systems in the West require a certain number of people to be flushing their toilets all the time to keep it flowing, right? But if there's fewer people, what are they going to do now? This is an imam in Norway, 2006. He said, just look at the development within Europe where the number of Muslims is expanding like mosquitoes. Every Western woman in the EU is producing on average 1.4 children. Every Muslim woman in these countries is producing 3.5 children. Our way of thinking will prove more powerful than yours. Indeed it will. Now in the meantime, we in the West are more than happy in the name of tolerance to hand over any self-respect we have left. In Austria, Muslims demand that all female teachers, whether you're Muslim or Christian or atheist or whatever, to wear headscarves in class. The Muslim Council of Britain wants to end Holocaust Day because it only focuses on the alleged Nazi Holocaust and not on, on Israel's Holocaust of Palestinians. There are women's only tables in libraries, swimming pools, public swimming pools have Muslim only times when men and women can, can swim at separate times. I want to go to Spain and Seville. This is very similar to how we tear down statues of Robert E. Lee. In Seville, Spain, King Ferdinand III is no longer the patron saint of a major festival that they have there because King Ferdinand III fought for Spanish independence from the Moors. Who were the Moors? The Moors were Muslims who in 700 invaded what is now today Spain and Portugal. Remember how we talked about how Egypt used to be a Christian country? Well, Spain was a Christian country, and then it was a Muslim country when the Muslim imperialists came in. Fortunately, King Ferdinand III drove the Muslims out. And now, not a Muslim country anymore. Anyway, it is now a Muslim country because we have to erase all memory of him in Spain because it's insensitive to Muslims. Think about how insane that is. <laughs> this, is this is even worse than Robert E. Lee statues. Because at least in America, we're all one country now. But Spain won the war. Right? And now, by the new invading army of Muslims, they were able to get Spain to remove that part of their history all based on tolerance and how that's offensive. He's offensive. Unbelievable. I don't, so... Do with this what you want. I'll end here. We'll end this conversation for today on this. This is Ben Franklin. During the American Revolution, he wrote to a British friend. He said, if you flatter yourselves with beating us into submission, you know neither the people nor the country here in America. He said, Britain, at the expense of three million pounds, has killed 150 Yankees. That's 20,000 pounds ahead. And during that same time, 70,000 children have been born in America. From this data, his mathematical head will easily calculate the time and expense necessary to kill us all. 
So Ben Franklin's writing to his British friend saying, listen, you, you just spent a ton of money and you killed like no one. At that rate, how much money is it going to cost you to kill all of us? Especially because in the meantime, we've had 60,000 births. Do the math. Well, Muslim leaders have done the math. There's no way the Muslim world can 9-11 us into submission. They did the math and figured that out. But they can outlast us. And they can outbirth us. And that's exactly what they're planning on doing. one 888 900 one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. I want to come back. And I want to talk about slavery in America, how it ended. You know, we've been talking about, you know, what was America, what would America be like if Saudi Arabia founded us? Um, well, there'd probably still be slavery. One example. So I want to talk about how slavery ended, how it really ended. And it ended because of America. Oh, it's controversial. I'll prove it next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Sanders America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Uh, quick, uh, quick note here. My uh, my book. I wrote a book. It's called How to Change Someone's Mind. It's available on Amazon right now. We got the ebook there, so you can read it right now. And it's also uh, on paperback. Check it out. Uh, How to Change Someone's Mind. So I want to be very clear about what it's not, because I don't want you to be very disappointed uh, thinking it's something else. It is not about how to win an argument. It is actually very easy to win an argument. You just talk louder and sound more confident than the other guy. Throw out some numbers, call him a name, you're good to go. And everyone will think you won. But you didn't change that person's mind. So I, I, I don't really know what good that is. It's fine. I wrote this really because you know how much I hate cable news. And I find it so, so meaningless, but it's very influential. And I think over the last decade or so, we've come to think that we should talk to each other the same way that TV pundits yell at each other. And we watch TV and we see two pundits yell and we say, oh, that guy won. <laughs> like, okay. And I guess having done that for a while, having been on TV doing the pundit thing, and just it's so, I feel so empty afterwards. It's like, oh, no one listened. No one, no one changed their mind ever. I've been on TV, I don't know, 50 times. No one ever changed their mind. And uh, I was like, there's got to be a better way. So that's what I sat down to figure out. And that's what I came up with. So it's called How to Change Someone's Mind. So think of that person in your life who, who is a flaming progressive or whatever. And you've just never been able to actually change their mind. Oh, you've had plenty of arguments. Maybe you've won most of them. Maybe you've lost a few. But their mind's never been changed. Uh, this will help you do that. I promise you it will help. Uh, you can search for Mike Slater on, in, in Amazon store, how to change someone's mind. It's there. 
today. Today's the first day. It's fully, completely available on Amazon, on um, ebook and paperback. So let us go here. One of my new favorite books, I know we talked a ton about it last week, so bear with me here, but I'm done reading it now, so I, I won't be uh, <laughs> quoting it every two minutes now. Uh, it's called Black Rednecks and White Liberals by the great Thomas Sowell. It's awesome. Thomas Sowell's amazing. I don't know why I would expect anything less than awesome. One of the chapters, one of the sections, debunks everything that you, you and your kids certainly have been taught about slavery, particularly about founding fathers and slavery. Now, why is this important? Progressives will often bring up the fact that, or they'll say that our founding fathers were just a bunch of slave owners. They were just white slave owners. Why do they say this? They say it to undermine everything that the founding fathers did. Everything they accomplished, including the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. If our founding fathers were evil, racist slave owners, then this country is evil and racist, and all of our institutions are evil and racist, which means that racism is, in fact, everywhere. I mean, look, it's even embedded in the founding of our country. It's the core of who we are. That's why they say such nonsense. Now, before I get to Thomas Sowell's insights, I just want to share one thing that we've talked about before when it comes to Thomas Jefferson, and they'll say Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. Yes, but there's some important context here. He inherited his slaves from his father and his father-in-law. And you think, well, Slater, what's different? I don't know. I think when people say Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, I think they imagine him going to the docks and picking out the slaves and beating them on his way, beating these slaves on his way back to his plantation. And that's not how that was. He inherited his slaves. And you think, well, Slater, why didn't he just let them free? It was illegal. At that time, it was illegal to free slaves without permission from the governor. In 1769, Thomas Jefferson drafted a law that would allow what's called manumission. And that is letting your own slaves free. You couldn't do that. So he drafted a law that said you could. It was finally ratified in 1782. Think about that though. Did you know it was illegal to free your own slaves? So Thomas Jefferson didn't buy slaves and keep them. He inherited slaves and was trying to get rid of them and did everything he could to. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence in the list of grievances, he denounced the king for the cruel war against human nature itself by bringing slaves to the colonies. He put that in there. Now, it was taken out because South Carolina and Georgia said they'd walk right out of that, concept, that convention if it stayed. And then the entire revolution would have been over right there from the jump. So they took it out. 1778, Jefferson drafted an amendment to the Constitution that said all children born of slaves after 1800 would be free and taxpayers should pay for their education. It never passed. There weren't votes for it. But Thomas Jefferson proposed it anyway. So when public opinion changed, as he knew it would eventually, there would be the bill. They could just pick it up, sign it, and pass it. 
So that's Thomas Jefferson. Black, red, next, white liberals talks about George Washington too. And Thomas Sowell says that it's amazing how we unfairly judge our founding fathers. He quotes a biography that's pro-Washington. And the biographer said that Washington, quote, helped create a new world, but had allowed into it an infection being slavery. Washington did not allow slavery into the new world. It existed. Slavery existed on American soil before George Washington was born. So what do you, what do you mean he allowed it in here? And he couldn't just by decree end it. That doesn't mean, so isn't that amazing how we unfair, oh, George Washington, <laughs> yeah, sure, father of our country, but he allowed slavery in. No, he didn't. It was already here, and he did everything he could to stop it. Maybe what he did more than anyone else was to help create a free republic, which led to the very first moral arguments against slavery and then ultimately its demise. I'll quote Sol here. He said, it was not because people thought slavery was right that it persisted for thousands of years. It persisted largely because people did not think about rightness or wrongness of it at all. No one even thought about it for thousands of years. No one even considered whether it was right or wrong. It was just the way it was. And everyone did it everywhere all around the world. It was the rise of modern free societies and their accompanying ideologies in the West, which made slavery stand out in stark contrast. And it was America that brought slavery into question in the first place. And once that happened, slavery could not stand up under moral scrutiny. So we have people on the left who criticize Washington and Jefferson and all of our founding fathers for having slaves, but those two people among, and all of our founding fathers get no credit for founding a society where slavery was questioned for the first time ever. They also get no credit for helping create a nation where at least half of it was free. Jefferson gets no credit for, for the draft of the state constitution of Virginia, which banned the importation of slaves. He gets no credit for in 1783, trying to emancipate the slaves in Virginia. Both of those things were defeated, but he's still the worst person in the world. He gets no credit for as president trying to stop the spread of slavery to the West. Check this out. All right. If you remember nothing else from this segment here, remember this right here. Thomas Jefferson, when he was president proposed a bill that would have declared it illegal to have slaves in the Western territories. Now at this time, Western territories would have included what's today, Alabama and Mississippi. So he proposed a bill that said it would have been illegal to have slaves in in the West, Alabama, Mississippi included that bill lost by one vote. And it was one vote, one legislator who was too sick to come and vote. Jefferson said the fate of millions of unborn was hanging on the tongue of one man and heaven fell silent in that awful moment. One legislator was too sick to vote. And that right there would have passed a bill that would have banned slavery in Alabama and Mississippi before they were states. Think about that. It was the founding fathers who did everything they could to stop slavery from starting in the North and then to stop it from spreading in the West as much as they could. And if they did not do that, then no black population would have ever grown in Delaware or Maryland. And if they didn't do that, then there would be no example in the North that we did not need slavery to be a successful economy. And if they didn't do that, then everything would have been different. 
And the founders get no credit for laying the foundations of which ultimately ended slavery in a time when around the world, no one was questioning it at all. I got one more thing I want to say. We'll do it next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. listening to Mike Slater. I want to share something here that when I when I read this in Thomas Sowell's book, Black Red Next White Liberals, please buy it. It's fantastic. It totally it was completely perspective shattering. Everything I've ever heard. It was incredible. I want to share in a second, but real quick, when I say slavery, what's the first thing you think of? Go. Boom. Slavery. First thing you think of. Very first thing. Go. You think south. South southerners enslaving Africans. Thomas Sowell's one of his points is that there's nothing, there's nothing else so historic, right? That is solely viewed in such localized terms. When I say war, let's say, let's say there's a hundred people in a room and I say war, no one thinks of one war, right? You may think of Vietnam, you may think of World War II, you may think of wars between different countries you made like there's like a ton of, when i say famine no one think no we don't all think of one famine there's lots of different famines that have existed but and the reason we do this is because war is not war's been everywhere forever famine's been everywhere forever slavery's been everywhere forever but slavery is the one thing that we think of as s- southerners against africans which is it makes no sense because I mean, if for no other reason, as we shared before from 1500 to 1800, more European white people were taken as slaves by North African Muslims than Americans enslaved Africans, not just more white people, two and a half times as many Europeans were enslaved by North African Muslims. So when I say slavery, why don't you think of white people being enslaved by Muslims? Why don't you think of British people enslaving Irish people in Jamaica? Think about that. There was a time in Jamaica when the black people there were not slaves, but the Irish people were, and the slave drivers were the British. <laughs> like, what? Let me give you an example of how, how far off progressives are when they criticize particularly America for this unique institution, which is nothing unique about this. Listen, kids today, I promise you, kids today think, that America invented slavery. That's, that's the level of ignorance here. But let me pick on one point in particular. Progressives will say that slavery was ingrained in our Constitution with the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution, which said that slaves, excuse me, black people are only three-fifths of a person. And they'll point to this and they'll say that this proves that founders were racist and considered black people less than, right? If you're, you're a white person, you're, you count as one. But if you're black, you're only three-fifths of one. So notice, real quick, before I tell you the truth of this, notice how you feel when I say that. The founders decided to count black people as three-fifths of a person. 
my gosh, I think they're progressive as a point. I mean, they, they clearly, our founders clearly were racist. What if I told you the opposite was true? At first glance, it's easy to characterize our founding generation as racist. I mean, look, they took a black person and count them as less than a person. But nope, it's the exact opposite. Why did the Northerners once want black people to be counted as three-fifths of a person? Well, let me, let me share one point here first. It wasn't black people. It was slaves. They wanted slaves counted as three-fifths of a person. Black people could vote. Free blacks could vote. One vote. In every way, they were a whole full person. It was just regarding slaves. But what, what does this mean? Three-fifths of a person. Three-fifths of a person in terms of what? This part of the Constitution was about counting people for congressional representation. If slaves were counted as a full person, then the Southern states would have gotten more representation in Congress. If slaves were counted as a whole person, when it comes to counting the number of people in a state, right? That's what they did. They go around, they count the number of people in a state. And then they say, oh, Georgia has this many people. Therefore they get this many congressmen. New York has this many people. They get this many congressmen. If they counted slaves as a whole person, then the Southern states would have gotten more votes in Congress. And then it would have been harder to pass anti-slavery laws because there would have been more Southern congressmen, right? The Northern states wanted slaves to be counted as three fifths of a person in order to decrease the political influence of the slave owning states. Imagine if instead of that, which is, I guess, what race baiters today would have preferred, imagine if the Northerners said, okay, slaves count as one person. They can't vote, of course, but they count as one person. Then Georgia, Alabama, Virginia, all, South Carolina, all these Northern states would have had more congressional representation and it would have been harder to pass anti-slavery legislation, which the Congress ultimately did, but they could only do it because there were more Northern congressmen than there were Southern congressmen. So the Northerners counted slaves as three-fifths of a person so that they could end slavery sooner. Isn't that amazing? So do you see how ignorant people are today? Modern progressives today want you to think that Northerners did this because, oh, they thought slaves were less than and black people were less than. Notice again how they switch, switch out the word slaves with black people. Even though, again, blacks were free blacks were one person, counted as one person and had one vote all the same. But they want you to make it seem, they, they, they make it seem as if Northerners didn't view black people as the same or slaves. No, 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 no. They did that because they wanted to end slavery sooner. Isn't that amazing? Amazing how poorly our kids are taught. I just think back to when I learned about the three-fifths compromise and how slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person or black people were counted as three-fifths of a person. And, and I just think, oh my gosh, that was pitched as proof that we were a racist country. No context whatsoever given to the motive behind that, which was to end slavery sooner. Unbelievable.
And what a, what a perfect example, a simple example of how one thing can be twisted to mean something that's the exact opposite. Just stunning. The book is Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Please buy it. It's fantastic. By Thomas Sowell. Coming up next, I want to talk about a conversation I had with someone the other day who just got back from Iraq and got back from small towns in Iraq that have been completely taken over by ISIS. Now ISIS has been driven out, but the population of this town is zero. So everyone has either been killed or driven out. I'll tell you some amazing stories that this gentleman had, including graffiti inside a church that was not written in Arabic. I'll tell you about that next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for being So, Rebel Media, Canadian website, went to Iraq, did some real amazing reporting there. They were the first Western journalists to go to one town in particular in Iraq that has recently been liberated from ISIS. So ISIS took it over, and uh, now they're gone. But 80% of the buildings are complete rubble. All the churches have been completely destroyed. Everything inside the church is destroyed, of course. All the crosses that were made of wood, those have all been snapped in half. Anything made of stone, statues, etc., shot at and destroyed. One thing that is especially disturbing is inside one church in particular, and they report on this. You can go to savethechristians.com, and they have a bunch of videos up there from the scene. Uh, But inside this church is written a bunch of graffiti. I hate graffiti against Christians. Oh, by the way, on all the buildings, uh, all the homes where there were Christians inside of them, they had marked the Arabic letter N, which uh, stands for Nazarene, which is what they call Christians. Jesus from Nazareth. Um, so all the, all the, and there's no, no different than the Nazis marking homes of Jewish people with the star David or the letter J for Jude. Same, same thing. It's another genocide happening right now. Um, but inside this, this church was graffiti against Christians in Arabic, but one wall had graffiti written in German. Perfect German. Get your blank cross out of here. This is Muslim land. No place for Christians here. You must die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Perfect German, which means there are Germans, Europeans going to the Middle East to fight for ISIS and kill Christians. Now, we already knew this, but here's, I don't want to say another reminder. Here's a, here's a, you see it. Like we've heard before, uh, you know, British intelligence saying there's tens of thousands of people in Europe who have traveled to the Middle East and back to fight for ISIS. But that's very, that's very vague, right? It's just here you see a German person. You see the consequence of a German person going into a church, uh, I'm sure uh, killing people along the way. And, and then when they're done clearing it and destroying all Christian symbols, uh, writing graffiti on the wall in German, amazing. There's a Christian genocide going on right now in the Middle East. 
If you listen to The Blaze, you know that. And you're one of the few people who do. Because it's receiving almost no attention. And anytime there's any reference to ISIS, there's a lot of excusing of what they're doing. And they're excusing because, oh, that's just because of our foreign policy. Mm, I promise you, listen, I'm, I believe in blowback. I get it. I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. Um, and I'm, I'm with it most of the time. But I guarantee you that these terrorists who are shooting at crosses in churches in Iraq are not doing that because of American foreign policy. This is much more than Western imperialism. The truth is this is Muslim imperialism. And I know I mentioned this in passing earlier, but let me go a little deeper into this. Islam was only invented in 630. The year 630, there were dozens of religions in this region prior to 630. Religions, a lot of them we've never heard of. Of course, they had Judaism and Christianity, but there was a ton of religions in this area called Iranian religions. Um, Dozens of different religions that had many different gods and all the rest. Many of them don't exist anymore, but think about that for a second. We We have this impression. I've always had this impression that of course, this is the region of the world where Muslims live. It's always been Muslim. This is where the Muslim lives. The Muslims live. This is Islam. It's there, right? No. Actually, for most of world history, that wasn't even a thing. It didn't even exist. Now, right before the rise of Islam, you had the Byzantines. They were Romans, Christians. They allied with a local tribe in the Middle East, known as the Ghassanids, G-H-A-S-S-A-N-I-D-S. They were Christians as well. So this is a Christian group in the Middle East that allied with the Byzantines. The Byzantines believed that Jesus and God were the same entity. They were one entity. The Ghassanids believed that Jesus and God were one nature. And you think, oh, geez, what, what, that, that, what's, what's the, we'll save that conversation for another day, but it was enough to cause a split between these two groups. The alliance broke. And that created a power vacuum that the Muslims took advantage of. That used to be a Christian area. Then Muhammad conquered a small area. The first caliphate doubled it. And then the second caliphate doubled it again across Northern Africa and as far east as India and, and into Europe. But my point is, and I know that's very, that was a very short history, but Christianity has been there longer than Islam. <laughs> right? Christianity was there for a long time. Christians were there before Muslims. They at least have as much right to that land as Muslims do. But the real point is that Christians are willing to live alongside and to live together with Muslims. It's the Muslims who are not willing. They are the conquerors. Isn't that amazing? There's a story that I I don't have time to share today, um, but it's from a woman who has spent decades of her life helping refugees around the world. And I want to be very clear about this. This is is not from some crazy conservative, hateful person, right? This is a a person who's compassionate to refugees, who, who has served refugees for decades all around the world. And she says what's going on in Europe today, particularly among Afghan refugees, is unlike anything she or anyone that she works with has ever seen. And her conclusion. Her conclusion is not just that these are cultural differences. And did I make her, did I build up her enough? Okay, she's not uh, uh, Michael Savage saying this. She's a progressive. She's not a Trump fan. She says that what's happening here 
is these Afghans in particular are, in her words, a new conquering army. And they're, they're conquering and they're invading in a place that they've never been before. Again, as we mentioned in the last hour, why is the number one name in England, Mohammed? The number one name in Amsterdam, in Belgium, in Sweden. What? But my main point in this segment, I'll take a break here, is, is why do we assume that the Middle East has always been Muslim or should be Muslim? They're killing Christians over there and they're trying to erase Christian history in that region. That's the point of tearing down statues and tearing down the churches and all the rest. They're trying to tear down history so that no one can ever claim that Christians had a right to that land or have a right to that land or should be there allowed in peace among everyone else. They're eliminating every reference to Christianity in that region so that they can say that they're the ones who have always been there and should be there and all the rest. They're the one committing genocide, yet somehow the Christians are being accused of being the imperialists and the colonialists and the bad guys and Western civilization is to blame and somehow Muslims get a pass. one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. It's amazing. I just Googled three-fifths compromise and all these. <laughs> all right, so here's the root.com. So all these Black Lives Matter groups and whatever dominate the Google results. And here's an article, three-fifths clause, why its taint persists, right? And it's like, wow, you've totally, totally, completely missed the point of that. The three-fifths, I don't need to go through it again, right? But the three-fifths compromise was not to degrade slaves. It was to hasten the end of slavery. It was to give Southern congressmen less representation in Congress so that the Northern congressmen could end slavery sooner. So there's no, that's not, because <laughs> it's amazing. How, like how can history be so perverted like that? Well, actually I'll give you another example. Um, do we have clip 1000? This is a clip of a congressman from uh, New York city. Here it is. This country should never build a wall. <laughs> this website's annoying. Do you want to try? <laughs> Sorry, the clip's buffering as we play it. To keep uh, this is an annoying out. website. Should there it deal go. with an immigration issue? Yes, but never, ever. ever build a wall on the contrary build another yeah i think we're <laughs> i think that's it for the clip why don't i just tell you what he said um he said that we should not only should we not build a wall at the southern border but we should put a, a, a new statue of liberty at our mexican border that's the message we should send to the world so there's two points I want to uh, to break down here. You, I don't know if we you could catch it out of there, but he said, um, he said, uh, should it deal with the immigration issue? 
meaning America. Should America, should it deal with the immigration issue? And he goes, should it deal with the immigration issue? Yes, yes, it should. Which is so, it's such a bizarre way to say something because should it, it, should it deal with it? Should it deal with the immigration issue? You're a congressman. That's you. (laughs) You're the it in that sentence. Should it deal with the immigrant? Yes, you should, but you don't really want to as proven by the rest of your sentence where you say we should put up a Statue of Liberty on the border. This is a perfect example, and I don't think we're going to get to any of this analysis today, but I'm reading this book uh, called Life Life at the Bottom by Theodore Dalrymple. It's fantastic. Um, and he is a prison, he's a psychologist in the, the poorest prisons and hospitals in England. And he says one common characteristic of the underclass is this passive voice. The knife went in. The gun went off. Just my luck to be in prison for the 13th time. Right. But, but you see, like it's not, I didn't do it. The knife went in and it's sort of very similarly passive here. Should it deal with the immigration issue? Yes, it should. You're a congressman. That's your job. But anyway, bigger point. Should we put the statue or build a new statue of Liberty at the border? Now he's not serious here. But even the symbolism is way off. I think one of the greatest switcheroos in, in American history, we've talked before about one of the greatest um, white out, whiting out of history is removing Reverend from Martin Luther King Jr. And removing every Christian, everything he's ever done. Removing sermon, right? Notice no one ever says anymore that, oh, here's a quote from MLK's sermon. No, it's always a speech. Every reference to Jesus is taken out and every Christian reference is taken out with anything regarding MLK Jr. He's become a great secular civil rights hero when in reality, it was a Christian crusade. So that may be number one, but here's another great switcheroo. And that is turning the Statue of Liberty into the Statue of Immigration. Right? We have a Statue of Liberty. It's, it's originally called uh, Liberty Enlightening the World. And now it's the Statue of Immigration. And it did that because we slapped, in the words of Mark Stein, we slapped a third-rate poem at the base of the statue and completely changed its original meaning. It has nothing to do with immigration. She's carrying a torch. Why is she carrying a torch? Not to attract people here, but to share her light of liberty with the whole world. So really, if we put a Statue of Liberty at the border with Mexico, the message that it would be sending, it should be sending if it was the same message that the original statue was intended, the message would be, get your act together, Mexico. (laughs) Get your act together, South America. Get your act together, Latin America. Stop being such a corrupt place that so many people want to leave. That's why the Statue of Liberty is wearing a crown with seven points, one for every continent. May liberty spread to every continent around the world. That's what that is. It's not, hey, here's the light so you could find it here. It's here's the light of liberty. Go spread it in wherever you are. Totally opposite meanings. Now, listen, hold on. I'll be fair. I'll be fair. If you want to build a Statue of Liberty at the border, we'll have a conversation about it. And maybe I'll go with it, but you also have to build an Ellis Island. What do you mean? 
you got to build an Ellis Island or something like it, something that did what Ellis Island did. Keep track of every person coming in the country. A little talked about aspect of Ellis Island were the examination rooms. If you go to Ellis Island, you'll see the, the Grand Hall and off on the side are all these different examination rooms full of doctors. If they saw you get off a boat and have to catch your breath or stop short, then they would pull you aside and check you for heart problems. Everyone who got off the boat, they would line them up and they would check for goiters and fungal infections under the nails, fingernails. They would check for ringworm. They'd give you a short psych exam. They would check for what they called psychopathic tendencies. I don't even know how they did that, but if they thought you were mentally unwell, you did not pass. The big inspection was the eye exam, trachoma. It's an eye infection. And this was before antibiotics. Today, it's easy to cure, but back then you'd go blind and it was very contagious. If you did not pass any of those examinations, back on the boat. Now, who paid for your trip back home? The steamship company. The steamship company had to pay for you to go back, which means they had an incentive to not even let certain people on the boat in the first place because they knew that if a sick person got to America, that Ellis Island, they would have put them back on the boat and they would have had to pay to ship this person back. So there were two levels of, of vetting, if you will, before you got on the boat and then once you got to Ellis Island. So Congressman, if you want to do that, if you want to have that Statue of Liberty, you got to have extreme vetting at the border as well. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America is the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Uh, this is a video of a 16-year-old in front of the California Racial and Identity Profiling Advisory Board. Now, uh, I can't believe that's a thing, but she says at the beginning of this clip here that she's with PICO and SDOP. PICO stands for People Improving Communities Through Organizing. And they say they're nonpartisan, but a 20-second perusal of their website, and you see that they are for prison reform and pro-Black Lives Matter and their first single-payer health care and pro-illegal immigration and all the rest. SDOP is San Diego Organizing Project. It's the same thing. It's just the local branch of PICO. Then another thing that's kind of hard to hear, she says she likes werewolf stories. That's what she's saying there, werewolf stories. It's just kind of hard to hear with the quality of the audio. Um, okay, I'll break it down after you hear it. It's uh, 1576. Hi, uh, my name is Leah Blake. I'm 16, and I'm with PICO California and SDOP. Um, I don't want to take too much time, but I'd like to start off saying uh, I used to read a lot of werewolf stories. <laughs> and I say that because in these stories, they'd have rogue wolves. These wolves would separate from the pack because they didn't agree with 
the laws, customs, and leadership that the rest of the pack adhere to. I say that because I don't believe in rogue cops. It makes no sense. The criminal justice system as we know it today was formed after slavery ended in order to continue to oppress and suppress black people. This was furthered and um, perpetuated by Jim Crow segregation, the war on drugs, and racial profiling. The thing that these all have in common is it uses race to oppress and suppress people of color. If there are rogue cops, they can't be rogue because the things that they're doing are simply perpetuating and complying with the core values of the organization for which they work. So she says there's no such thing as rogue cops. It's not that there's a few bad apples. They're all bad. Uh, let me start saying this. The girl's 16 years old. I, I commend her for getting up and speaking. I think it's awesome that she's involved. And nothing I say here is critical of her. Uh, I'm critical of the people around her. And from the people who she's getting this toxic perspective from, there is no way she on her own came to the conclusion that, quote, the criminal justice system was formed after slavery to continue to oppress and suppress black people. <laughs> I don't even know how anyone could possibly think that's true. Here's the big picture. I'm not going to waste time focusing on each specific accusation because they all fall under the broader category of every problem in the, in the black community is caused by external factors. Every single problem. But it's not true. Again, I know we've already quoted it today, but it's such a good book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell, who I guess I have to say is a black man a black economist, one of the smartest people of our era, no doubt about it. Um, he said every problem, or we're told that every problem in the black community can be traced back to the legacy of slavery. But blacks from the Caribbean, they had a history of slavery, but they brought to the United States with them a very different culture, which is why among Blacks from the Caribbean, they have a higher rate of entrepreneurship, higher education levels, a lower incarceration rate than blacks from America. Thomas Sowell calls it ghetto black culture. All right, so ghetto black Americans and black people from the Caribbean, they're both black. They both had a history of enslavement. But what they don't share is a history of redneck culture. And I know we talked a ton about this last week, but in case you missed it, redneck culture. So redneck is not a term from the South. Cracker is not a term from the South. Both of those terms come from uh, Northern, Northern England and Ulster County, Ireland and Scotland, which are where the people who settled the Southern colonies came from. They brought with them their redneck culture. So Southerners, had that culture from Northern England, all white Southerners, all Southerners. Then over time, white people moved away from that culture, but it was embraced by black Americans in the South, not black Americans in the North. They had a very different culture. There was a time when black Southerners migrated to the North and they brought with them their broken culture. And now you see it 
in pockets uh, all across the country, mostly in cities, the ghetto black culture. That culture, there's nothing black about it. Again, if you trace it back, it's very similar to the culture of the crackers and rednecks in Northern England. And that's, that's what Thomas Sowell does in this book is he traces the whole thing out. Um, the reason that people blame all the problems in the black community on external factors on the sins of others is in his words, it it requires no painful internal changes in the black population, but leaves all changes to whites. In short, there are in short, there are many who find a good alibi far more attractive than achievement for an achievement does not settle anything permanently. We still have to prove our worth every day. We have to prove that we are as good today as we were yesterday. But when we have a valid alibi, a valid excuse for not achieving anything, then we are fixed, so to speak, for life. Excuses. When you have excuses, it's never your fault. It's always someone else's fault. That's why, that's how you come up with such nonsense as this girl was told that the criminal justice system today was formed after slavery to continue to suppress black people. Now that is said with zero evidence given whatsoever. And we're just supposed to accept that as truth. And white people do because we're supposed to feel guilty about it. Even though you had no slaves, your ancestors might have fought and died to end slavery, which we talked about in the last hour. But slavery is just this all-purpose explanation for everything. Broken families, poor education is absurd. Because right after slavery, check this out, right after slavery, blacks had a higher labor participation rate and a higher marriage rate than white people. Slavery couldn't even keep black families apart. Slavery couldn't. There's many stories of black men searching the ends of the earth to find their family that was ripped away from them during slavery. Black men going back down to the South and going all over everywhere, trying to find their children, trying to find their wife. Today, most black men leave their children. 70% of black kids are born without a present father. 70%. That is an abandonment of responsibility and of family. And that's going on today in the black ghetto community, worse than during slavery or right after slavery. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. Just take two black people. Take, take a black person from 1870 doing everything they can to find their family and then take someone from the ghetto black community today, the ghetto black culture, who their family's down the street. It's just abandoned them. So my point here is that all of these social ills only started 100 years after slavery ended. Why did the disintegration of the black family happen a hundred years after slavery ended? You're going to blame slavery for that? That makes no sense. What about the previous hundred years? Check this out. Education rates among Northern blacks. All right. So visualize that black people in the North education rates were higher than Southern whites after slavery. Why? Because black people in the North had a different culture than even white people in the South. One that valued education, responsibility, hard work. Black kids in the South who were educated in schools run by Northerners. So there was this big missionary program movement of teachers from the North moving to the South to educate black kids and start schools. 
those black kids who were educated in schools run by northerners so these white northerners brought a culture down with them these black southerners performed higher in tests than southern blacks southern whites northern blacks and in some cases even northern whites it was a culture that valued education today it's a culture that doesn't and i should say as i'm reading this other book life at the bottom by theodore dalrymple who as i mentioned was a psych- is a psychiatrist in the poorest prisons and hospitals in england he's the whole book's about the same culture but it's not it's not black over there it's just it's white it's but it doesn't matter it's nothing to do with race this is what's so wild when i talk about stuff like this i get accused of being racist there's nothing racist about it that's my point it's all culture it's entirely cultural there's zero race at all it's all culture 1871 a former slave owner visited a uh, one of these schools these black schools in the south and he expected to see dumb black kids there. Instead, he walked in and saw former slaves and children of slaves reciting Latin and Greek. He was astounded. That was 1871 in Georgia. Today in Baltimore, there are six high schools where not a single student can read at grade level. You're going to blame a legacy of slavery? A legacy of slavery that didn't even hold back the kids in this school in 1871? Not even a decade after the Civil War? Are you kidding me? I'll end here with Thomas Sowell. He said, such behavior must be changed if progress is the goal. On the other hand, if the real agenda is to score points against American society, then blacks can be used as a means to that end. Moreover, a pro-black stance by white intellectuals enhances their moral standing and self-esteem, whether or not the particular manifestation of that stance helps or harms black people in the end. All right, so if you say, oh, I'm, oh yeah, I'm totally for what I, restorative justice or Black Lives Matter or not teaching proper English in school and having low, lower standards in education, and continuing this welfare program and that welfare program and all this. If you're for all those things, uh, oh, you feel good. <laughs> if you're a white intellectual, that increases your moral standing. You may feel better about yourself, but gosh, you're only making it worse because all these problems in the black community started in 1860. That was the rise of the welfare state. And that did more to destroy the black family than slavery ever did. That's amazing. And what you heard from that 16-year-old girl is a poison that has been peddled to her that she truly believes and will use it as an excuse for the rest of her life. I'll prove that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I love this uh, excuse that systematic racism is uh, because the criminal justice system was created after slavery to oppress black people. Remember we played a clip last week of Larry Elder. Uh, he said in Baltimore, which is where Freddie Gray um, was, was killed, uh, 45% of the city is black. 
the city council is 100% Democrat. Uh, the number one cop is black. The number two cop was black. The majority of the command staff in the police department is black. Uh, the mayor is black. The attorney general is black. But we're still talking about racism in the system. It's never enough. Uh, one more clip from this 16-year-old girl. And again, it's not about her. It's about the uh, stuff she's fed every single day. 1577. A while ago, I had a San Diego police, um, police officer tell me that, like someone else in here said, California has the best police training in the nation. A week later, Alfred Olenga was killed. That was not a standalone. Mm. Okay, so I don't, it's not working right now. Apologies for that. Um, again, why don't I just tell you what she said? She mentions Alfred Alongo. Alfred Alongo was a guy in El Cajon, California, right down the street from where I am right now. Uh, police officer shot and killed him. There was video of it. Turns out the guy pulled out a vape, an e-cigarette, which at the moment looks exactly like a gun. He was not complying with orders and ultimately was found out that he had cocaine in his system. The police officer who shot him was Hispanic and there was another police officer right next to him who fired a taser at the exact same time. So they both thought that it was a threat. Uh, that officer was black. So we had a black officer and a Hispanic officer shooting this black man. Right. That information left out of this person's description of it. Uh, and again, the officers need de-escalation training, not the man complying. The man complying doesn't need any de-escalation training. The man who shoots, who doesn't comply and, and pulls out a vape cigarette as if it's a gun, he doesn't need any, it's not his fault. It's the police officers. They didn't de-escalate enough. What a perfect metaphor for the real issue here. It's not his fault for not complying and pulling out something that looked just like a gun. It's the police officer's fault for not de-escalating it properly. And there was one other word she said there, which was a very uh, progressive buzzword. She said, we need better training and de-escalation and cultural understanding. We need better cultural understanding. Do you see how it's not about the people who have the culture? It's about everybody else's ability to understand it. <laughs> see that? It's not about recognizing what the culture is and trying to find the broken parts and fixing them. It's about everyone just understanding the culture. And understanding means excusing it, justifying it, bowing down before it, no matter how destructive it is. Let me share one last story here. Oberlin College. And, and I, I, I share this because I feel so bad for this girl because she's being raised to think she's a victim. She thinks she's a victim. Oberlin College in Ohio. It was founded by white missionaries, really. Uh, white Northerners. At the time, Ohio, 1833, Ohio was the middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. Like, I, like Cincinnati had a thousand people. Zero people in Ohio. Uh, but this college accepted black people. It wasn't a white, black college, but they accepted black people. Uh, half of the black people in the country who got a college degree in 1899 were from Oberlin. First black woman to receive a college degree. 1862. One year into the Civil War, she graduated and became a principal of a high school in Washington, D.C. called Dunbar High School. Now, again, her culture was Northern, right? This school founded by white Northerners in Ohio, Northern school. She went to Dunbar. She went to D.C., founded this school and brought these Northern principles, this culture. From this high school in D.C., the first black graduate of Annapolis, 
the first black woman to earn a PhD, the first black general, the first black cabinet member, and the first black federal judge, all from Dunbar High School, which did not selectively choose the kids. It was an inner city high school. Now, if the if this woman could do these things in the 1860s, why are we raising this girl to be victimized by slavery? This woman got a college degree in 1862. Thomas Sowell tells the story of a black student in college today. It was in Marquette who told him that he wanted to be a fighter pilot, but he realized he couldn't because the military wouldn't let in black people. And he said, what are you talking about? Have you never heard of the Tuskegee Airmen during World War II? And of course they haven't heard the story of the Tuskegee Airmen because that's a story of overcoming obstacles. The only culture that this person has been taught is the culture of victimhood. And it can be changed. These cultures can be changed. The broken culture can be changed. I got to do this real quick, but there were very few uh, black people in San Francisco after World War II, but a bunch of Southern blacks moved there. Population went from 5,000 to 40,000 in a decade. The native blacks in San Francisco called these new blacks foreigners. And they were worried that there'd be a lot of racism because these Southern blacks were so backwards. Same thing among Jews. There were a ton of Jews in New York from Germany. But when Eastern European Jews arrived, the German Jews said, oh, no, these Eastern European Jews are dirty and they're gross and they got bad manners. We're going to help them assimilate. That's what the blacks in San Francisco did. That's what the Jews in New York did with these different types of people with with a different culture. Same groups, but different cultures came in. They tried to help them assimilate and they did help them assimilate. It's nothing to do with race. It's culture. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Um, I don't I don't like to do this, and I don't normally, but I had an incredible conversation with a gentleman on Monday on my local show. Uh, if you go, if you search for Mike Slater or San Diego, the website will pop up, and you go to the podcast section, and it was Monday at one o'clock. Um he is a man whose uncle was in the 442. His uncle, Arthur Nishimoto, was an 18-year-old beach bum from Hawaii. He made just enough money to survive and, and buy spam uh, <laughs> uh, to, to live off of in his little hut uh, by every couple of days some tourists would come and pay him some money and he'd go and teach him how to surf. So the total beach bomb life, second generation Japanese. And he was on his garage roof when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. He could see the Japanese pilots inside the planes as they flew overhead. He was so devastated. Arthur was so devastated that his country, America was attacked. And he knew 
that other Americans would look at Japanese Americans like him as a threat. And these two things inspired him to join the military along with thousands of other Americans, Japanese Americans. And that's what turned into the 442, the 442nd Infantry Regiment. An absolute stunning story. I believe, I, I would argue, it's the greatest story in American history. You're, that's a bold statement. No, there's plenty of good ones. Don't get me wrong. We just mentioned the Tuskegee Airmen. Similar. But I would, I would if I was tasked with, with coming up with the greatest story in American history, I think it would be the men of the 442. You know, we were just talking about culture and choices and, and the 16-year-old girl talking about systemic racism and systematic racism and how the criminal justice system was designed after slavery to keep black people oppressed and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, you have Japanese people in the midst of laws that say Japanese people can't own land. And the intense discrimination of the anti-Jap leagues, particularly in California on the West Coast. Crazy racism in the 1930s and 1940s. And they had Japanese Americans literally interned, rounded up in the middle of the night, told to leave everything behind and brought to these camps via train, just straight up internment camps. And still, these men fought for this country specifically. And this is the key. And this is why I think this is the greatest story in America specifically fought, intentionally fought, purposefully taught because they wanted to prove the stereotypes wrong. I want to be very clear about this. These men in the 442 did not fight and then afterwards happened to have proved stereotypes wrong. Nope. They fought to prove the stereotypes wrong and they did. They knew that they would be viewed as the enemy. So they went, they wanted to prove beyond all doubt that they were not the enemy and that they were loyal, patriotic Americans just like everyone else in this country. That is such a frustration I have with different subcultures in America is there's no effort to prove everyone wrong. There's no effort to prove the stereotypes wrong. In fact, in pop culture within these subcultures, they go through great lengths to prove the stereotypes right. Listen to some rap music as an example of the garbage that's being put out there and the garbage that's going into people's minds. And that gives you an idea of how it turns into garbage out, garbage in, garbage out. But that girl, she said she basically she's saying she can't succeed because of systematic oppression, but it didn't stop the men of the 442. That's incredible but it's going to stop you. And that's the story we just shared that the first black graduate of Oberlin college, or I shouldn't say the no. Yeah. First black, black female graduate of Oberlin college, 1862. It didn't stop her, but it's going to stop you. What are you talking about? So I asked this gentleman for, for a characteristic of the men of 442. And he said, Yamada Damashi. And I said, Oh, that's exactly what I thought you were going to say. I said, what the heck is Yamada Damashi? He said, it's an old samurai principle part of the Bushido code, samurai code. And it means having the ability to feel fear, but to overcome it. I want to be clear. It, it's not the ability to not feel fear. It's the ability to feel it and overcome it. College campuses are severely lacking in Yamada Damashi. Now, I've never heard this term before when I talked to this guy. So I did some research. And I came across the story of an MMA fighter. His name's Ensign Inoue. 
and he was known for being willing to die in the octagon. He was a Japanese American. He was known for being willing to die. Someone would put him in an arm lock and he, he won't tap out. He'll just get his arm broke. <laughs> you just, it's like, so everyone else, you put them in an arm bar and they tap out right away. Cause if you don't, it's going to break your arm, but you put him in an arm lock and he won't tap out. You, you got to break his arm. That's Yamada Damashi. He never gives up. And this is why the men in the 442 were known by the German soldiers, not because they were Japanese people in American uniforms, but because they were insane. They would charge uphill into German machine gun fire. That's Yamada Damashi. I watched an interview with this MMA fighter and he gives an example and he says, imagine your, I, I tell you to walk across or walk on this two by four, 20 yards. Okay. You got to walk on this two by four, 20 yards. And at the end of the two by four, if you make it across, I'll give you a thousand bucks. You just can't fall off. Can't fall off and touch the, the touch the ground. You got to walk on the two by four to the end. No problem. Everyone can do that. And he says, but now let's say I put that beam this two by four in between two buildings, 10 stories in the air, same plank, same two by four. I put a thousand dollars at the end. Will you do it? Probably not. This is what he says. He says it's the same plank, same two by four, same money, same everything. Except what I'm doing with the situation is when you have the plank lying on the floor, the only thing in your mind is if you fall off, you're not going to get the thousand bucks. You're not going to lose anything. You're not going to lose your life. So your mind starts focusing right there on what you get at the other side, what I'm going to do with a thousand dollars. But then I put you in a different scenario and now I control your fear and I can control how you're going to think all of a sudden, bam, instead of the rewards of success, what your focus is going to be on is, Oh geez, I'm 10 stories up. If I fall, I die. So right there, you're not even thinking about the thousand bucks. You're not even thinking of one way of how you're going to spend the thousand bucks because you're so worried about falling. And he says, I believe every fighter has that. Whether it begins at the beginning of the fight or when he's getting arm locked, I believe every fighter has that in them where they have fear. And at that point, when, where you're going to become a Yamada Damashi fighter or not is what you do with the fear and how you look at it and what you focus your mind on. If you focus on the fear, you're going to tap out. You're going to quit. No one's going to fight with all they have. Yamada Damashi is not machismo, not about being tough. It's not about no fear, no pain. It's about what you do with the fear and the pain. That's the men of the 442. They felt obviously not only the fear of living in, or fighting in World War II, forget about even that. They knew the pain. They felt the pain of having their family interned in internment camps back home. They knew the pain of the U.S. military knocking on their doors and ripping their families from their homes. They knew that pain. What did they do with it? They went out join the military to prove everyone wrong. 
That's why I think it's the greatest story in America. And what what a what a completely different way of life than millennials today, especially college kids, who all the time are fearful of everything and just making excuses all the time for for totally non-existent problems, as if their families are interned. And then there's no achievement in their life and they're just looking for more blame for everyone, for everything. And no, it's not everyone else's fault. You're just scared and the fear's winning. You can't overcome it. You don't have Yamada Damashi. You're not as manly as the men of the 442. I'll end here. The, the author, oh, so this guy's writing a book. His name's Eric. He's writing a book about his uncle. And his uncle was nearing the end of his life and he asked him for some final advice on this book. And out of nowhere, Arthur gave writing advice and and Eric wasn't expecting, Eric was expecting, Oh, make sure you put this story in there or something like that. And Arthur gave this advice and I'll never forget this for as long as I live. Arthur told his nephew who was writing the book, he said, Don't add to it. Cut out all adjectives. More verbs. Facts with action. So they want to eat it all up. Cut out the adjectives. More verbs. I feel like too much of our society today is all adjectives, no verbs, all talk, no action. one 900 Let's all be more like the men of the 442. one 900 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Isn't that an amazing story? Like that is a perfect example between the difference of society today and and young people today in particular, where a, a, a slight breeze will throw them in the fetal position, versus the men in the four four two who experienced extreme uh, discrimination and intentionally, willfully, purposefully set out to prove everyone wrong. No different than black people after slavery who went through incredible lengths to bring their family back together, to get an education, to prove all the stereotypes wrong. And today it's, it's flipped. It's people as a badge of honor almost embrace the negative stereotypes, embrace the most broken aspects of broken cultures. And then make excuses and blame everyone else so that they're the victim now. 
It's so completely backwards. And, and I think people, to get them out of that, we have to show what it should look like. Right? We have to show, give examples like the men of the 442 who set out to prove stereotypes wrong. It's possible. Not only possible, it's necessary. We need so much more of that. I'm going to do a lot more research on the men of the 442. I'm going to read a lot more about them because, I, again, like I said, I think it's one of the greatest. I think it's, I would argue, like, like what, it's, it's a kind of a fun game, right? If, if you had a, a debate, greatest story in America, and there's so many to choose from, and if someone else gave a great one, I wouldn't shoot them down with it. But my choice would be the men of the 442. Um, one last plug, if I can, from my book. I wrote a book. It's called How to Change Someone's Mind. Uh, short book. I read it. I wrote it to be read in an hour. You can read it in about an hour. I meant it as like a guidebook, something you can turn back to frequently. Um, I, I want to be very clear about what it's not. And, and because if you are coming in expecting one thing and, and it's, uh, it's not that you're gonna be very disappointed. It is not about how to win an argument. It's very easy to win an argument. I, I've learned after 10 years of talk radio uh, that to win an argument, you talk louder and sound more confident than the other person. And what happens, and we talk about this in the book, because of group uh, group identities, if you do that around a group of people, then people will think you won. And that's fine, but the person who you're debating, they didn't change their mind. So what good is that? You've made feel better about yourself, but they feel worse about themselves. So this book is not about that because I believe that you have principles and opinions that if more people shared them, it'd be a better world. It'd be a better country. Winning arguments isn't going to grow that. Not going to make allies. You got to change people's minds. That's how you grow their allies. So that's what this book is about. Uh, Use some different stories, use some science, bunches, a lot of science uh, to prove this. And I think it's helpful. And what I really look forward to are examples or, or success stories of how you've used some of these techniques and uh, how they've worked. Because as in the book, well, I don't want to give any stories away. Check it out. Go to Amazon, search for Mike Slater. Um, you go to the Mike Slater Facebook page. There's a link to it right there. Search for Mike Slater, uh, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Uh, so you get the ebook and the paperback book is uh, they're both available on Amazon right now. I'd love for you to get it. And uh, I look forward to some great successes in changing people's minds, how to change people's minds. Saturday Crusaders, hope you have a great rest of your weekend and we'll see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.